We're going to be going through an exegesis of Romans chapters 9, 10, and 11, which are about the most confusing verses of Scripture you can find, especially when it comes to the ideas of predestination, foreknowledge, election, and so forth. God's mercy and how he shows it. Um, the problem with, the, with Romans 9, 10, and 11 is not only one of understanding what it says, but also people have for so long said that this means a particular thing, and, you, and we've heard it quoted so frequently in a particular fashion that um, we've never had the whole thing put together in our minds and related to the entire Bible in the way that the Bible is talking about these things to have it straight in our own minds as to what is God saying when he says things like, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. And we'll be seeing that that is not an arbitrary statement or a statement about the fact that God can be arbitrary and have mercy towards one and not towards another if he wants, but that it's one of the strongest statements in the Old Testament that Paul has picked up to use to say, God is not arbitrary in the way that he dispenses his mercy. That's how he's using the verse in the argument, and so we want to see how that relates. First, we have to look at the setting of Romans chapters 9, 10, and 11 in the middle of the setting of the entire book of Romans and see what is God getting after in the entire book of Romans. It's very frequently been said and very truly said that the whole idea of the book of Romans is justification by faith. Justification by faith. The problem with that is it's a little bit scant. It's a, it's a scanty definition in that it doesn't include something else that Paul the Apostle was getting after as well. It's not just justification by faith, but it is the justification of the Gentiles by faith in opposition to the idea that the Jews could be justified by works or by doing good deeds, that they could somehow gain favor with God. It's not just justification by faith, but also the idea that it's justification of the Gentiles by faith in the midst of the idea of, well, why the, the, the whole, you can hear a question behind the whole thing. The Jews are saying, why can't we, why, why is it that after we've gone through all this time of serving God, why is it now that the Gentiles, through faith, can become a part of, of all that God is doing and that they now have salvation, whereas we uh, didn't gain it through the works that we did. You see? There's a whole question behind this, and it's all the way through the book, and we'll see how that, how that comes out. In chapter 1, we have the sin of the Gentiles. There's a very logical progression through here on justification by faith. The sin of the Gentiles in chapter 1. In chapter 2, we have the sin of the Jews. It talks about the law and how the Jews were given the law but did not keep it. In chapter 1, of course, it's talking about the revelation through nature that every person has and has rejected. And in the sin of the Jews, that they as a group have rejected, basically, at this point, had rejected the law, had not been obedient, and had disobeyed God's commands, and therefore were guilty as well. Then in chapter 3, it all comes together and he says, what is it then? Everybody has sinned. We see the famous verse, Romans, or, yeah, Romans 3, 23, all have sinned. There is no distinction between the Jew and the Greek, he says. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And then at the end of chapter 3, he talks about the atonement that was made 
through the death of Jesus, that people might be set free from this sin. So we have chapter 1, the sin of the Gentiles, chapter 2, the sin of the Jews, chapter 3, everybody has sinned. There is no distinction between the Jew and the Greek. And then at the end of that, what has God done in response to that? God has made an atonement in the death of Jesus so that he might be able to justly forgive men and set them free from the penalty of their sin, which they deserve. Then in chapters 4 and 5, Paul the Apostle goes through the principle of justification by faith. And what he's saying is that you, you are justified by faith. It doesn't matter whether you're a Jew or a Gentile. You're justified by faith, not by your good works. Not by your good works. Now, he never pits, he never says that faith is a work. He says we're justified by faith, not works. And he never pits grace against faith. He says we are justified by grace, not works. We're justified by faith, not works. But he never calls faith or repentance a work. Because he pits faith against works. He says it's by faith, not works. So obviously he did not consider faith a work. That was simply the responsibility that we were always supposed to fulfill towards God. And when we repent and believe, we don't earn anything as far as favor towards God is concerned by our repentance and belief. We're only doing what we always should have done, which was to be living in accordance with God's law, to bring ourselves in accordance with that as repentance, and then to be trusting in God, which is to believe. We were always supposed to be doing that. But what had we been doing? We've been rejecting God. We hadn't been having faith in him, not trusting him, but trusting in ourselves and not living according to his law. You see? So when we repent and start living according to his law, that's change our, our mind and start doing what we know to be right, then that is not a work. That doesn't earn anything with God. That's what we should have done to start with. When we believe God, that's what we should have been doing to start with. It doesn't earn anything before God. Okay? So then faith and repentance are not works, but they are conditions that are necessary for our salvation. Because until we repent and believe and trust God, we cannot be set free from the penalty of our sin that we deserve to have. So then it's justification by faith in chapters 4 and 5, not works. Chapters 6 through 8, Paul talks about faith and relationship to God, and that we, through faith and relationship with God, are made right with him and live with him, and it's not by the works of the law. Okay, this is where you get statements like we are not under law but under grace and so forth. Okay, he wasn't saying there was anything wrong with the law. He was simply saying that it is not by the works of the law that we can have maintain a relationship with God. Okay? That will never set me free from sin to do what is right. That's what I'm supposed to do to start with. The only thing that can set me free from sin is faith and repentance. And then, of course, on the basis of the atonement. It's not just my my choosing. Then number six. Number six is, well, I don't know how you've got it numbered there, but um, then in Romans 9 through 11, God is dealing with his dealings with nations. Okay, now this is in the context of the whole rest of the book. Okay, but it's in God's dealings with nations, that is the Jews and the Gentiles. And Paul starts out with, um, I have great sorrow in my heart, and I wish that even I could be accursed from Christ so that my brethren, my kinsmen according to the flesh, that is, the Jews, could be saved. Okay? 
So um, he's talking about the Jews and the Gentiles and how God is now dealing with the Gentiles and giving them salvation through faith. And of course, the, the question in the Jewish mind is, well, you know, what is God doing? Here he's letting people come to him by faith. They don't have to keep the law. They don't have to perform all these works that we had to go through, quote, quote, that they had to go through, they thought. And, uh, and why is God giving them salvation through faith now? See, big question in the Jewish mind. All this history that we've gone through of keeping God's ordinances and God's commands and all this persecution we've gone through because we've been God's people, and now the Gentiles come along and through a simple act of faith, they are brought right into God's family and, and avoid all that other stuff. Now, why is that? And so Paul is dealing with the fact that, that salvation has always been through faith in there. It has never been by works. Even with the Jews, it was never um, uh, never with works. So he's dealing with nations, the Jews and the Gentiles. And then in uh, chapters 12 through 15, he goes on to talk about how the Gentiles who have been set free from sin can live practically. So chapters 12, 13, 14 especially talk about how we live practically before the Lord. It's some practical instruction for Christians. But then starting in chapter 15, Paul the Apostle starts to talk about his ministry towards the Gentiles. Starting in chapter 16, 15, he starts talking about his ministry towards the Gentiles. He says, you know that I've been called to minister to Gentiles. And he talks a lot about that and quotes in, in chapter 15 lots of scriptures concerning the fact that God was going to save Gentiles. And he quotes all kinds of things from the Old Testament, saying, look, see this scripture? It says God was going to save the Gentiles. Showing that he had a valid ministry to the Gentiles because God was going to save them. And then in chapter 16, we have the greetings to different people that were in Rome as the conclusion of the book. But the whole thing is concerning the Jews and the Gentiles and the question of why is it that now God... Can, has the right to save them through faith. See, now, the Jews would ask this kind of question. Does God have the right to save the Gentiles, Gentiles through faith when we for so long have been keeping the law, when we've been serving God by keeping the law? What is this now that God's doing? We don't understand this. Now people can just believe on the basis of what Jesus has done on the cross, and suddenly, wham, they're right into the family of God, all the blessings of God are upon them. They're restored to fellowship with God when we went through all of these works to try to bring ourselves to God. And they think, well, that's not fair. Um, as well, with, the, um, with this, the whole thing, that is Romans 9, 10, and 11, is what we're talking about now, deals with groups in reference to salvation, not individuals. It does not deal with individuals. Individuals are only included as examples to represent principles in Romans 9, 10, and 11. Did you get that? In the, it, the whole thing of 9, 10, and 11 of Romans is concerning Jews and Gentiles, groups of people, nations with whom, with whom God is dealing. It does not concern the salvation of individuals only as they are part of those groups. And so when God mentions individual people, he is not speaking about them in reference to salvation concerning themselves, but he only mentions individuals in reference to what he is doing as far as principles are concerned, pointing out the principle of salvation through faith. 
And, of course, the whole thing is to point out that it's by principle that God saves, that he is not arbitrary in any way. Now, the Jews sometimes got the idea that, um, that they could be saved through works, and thus God could be somewhat arbitrary, and you could earn your salvation with God by the works that you did, and that God didn't treat all people the same. That's why there was such a big division between the Jewish nation and the Gentiles, and such prejudice. They call the Gentiles dogs and other things, because they felt we have been given the law, we have been keeping it, and therefore God's favor will be upon us, but not upon other people, and it's too bad for them. You see, they developed a, an extreme high-mindedness there, which Paul attacks, of course, in Romans chapter 11. So then, the whole idea in Romans 9, especially Romans 9, is that God is not arbitrary in the way that he dispenses his salvation or his mercy to people. He is not arbitrary. And yet this chapter, out of all the chapters in the Bible, has probably been the, the one most used to try to say that God is arbitrary. That God um, can do with one person whatever he wants and do with another person something completely different and it's all up to God and it, he doesn't have to follow any principles at all. See, The word arbitrary means not according to law or not according to principle. And people think that he can live that way and these chapters get used to try to prove it but that's, of course, improper. Now I'd like to go through uh, chapters 9, 10, and 11 very briefly pointing out particular phrases that show that it's a Jew-Gentile context, that it has to do with nations and not with individuals. Okay? Starting in chapter 9, he says this, verse 3, I, wish that I, I could wish that I myself were accursed, separated from Christ, for the sake of my brethren, my kinsmen, according to the flesh, beginning of verse 4, who are Israelites. Okay? He's talking about Israel. In verse 6, he says, for they are not all Israel who are descended from Israel. And he starts talking about Abraham and Isaac and Rebekah. starts talking about what God is doing in history with the Jewish, Jewish nation. Okay? Verses 23 and 24. And he did so in order that he might make known uh, the riches of his glory upon vessels of mercy which he prepared beforehand for glory, even us, whom he also called, not from among Jews only, but also from among Gentiles. He's talking about Jews and Gentiles. God's being able to save the Gentile through faith. Um, verse 30 says this, What shall we say then? The Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness attained righteousness, even the righteousness which is by faith. But Israel, pursuing a law of righteousness, did not arrive at that law. And he goes on to talk about why they didn't arrive at it, because they pursued it by works rather than by faith. Then in chapter 10, he says, Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them, that is for Israel, is for their salvation. Verse 3, it says, For not, not knowing about God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own, they did not subject themselves to the righteousness of God. Talking about, again, the Jews and the Gentiles. Chapter 10 and verse 12 says, for there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. Same word, actually. There is no distinction between Jew and Greek or Jew and Gentile. For the same Lord is Lord of all, abounding in riches for all who call upon him. For whoever will call upon the name of the Lord 
will be saved. Again, talking about Jews and Gentiles. And at the end of uh, chapter 10, uh, he talks about the Gentiles have heard through the creation. That's in verse 18. They've heard the, the, uh, the glad tidings. And then in uh, verse 21, he says, But as for Israel, he says, All the day long I have stretched out my hands to a disobedient and obstinate people. The conclusion of that, as we will see later, is that therefore they knew the law and had rejected it. And then he goes on in verse 11, or chapter 11, verse 1. I say then, God has not rejected his people, has he? May it never be, for I too am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham. You see, he's talking about Jews and Gentiles. In verse 11, I say then, they did not stumble so as to fall, may it never be. But by their transgression, salvation has come to the Gentiles to make them jealous. Again, talking about Jews and Gentiles. Chapters, or verses 12 through 24, um, you have the, the illustration of the piece of dough, the, um, the olive tree, talking about Israel as the true branches and the Gentiles as the wild olive. Okay. Again, Jews and Gentiles. And then in verses uh, 25 through 32, we see things like this. A partial hardening has happened um, to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles be come in. Okay? Um, 32, for God has shut up all in disobedience that he might show mercy to all. Talking about Jews and Gentiles. Okay? So then, we see that it's a Jew-Gentile idea all the way through, and what Paul is dealing with is God has a right to give to the Gentiles salvation through faith because that's the way God always has saved people, is through faith. Okay? And in chapter 4, of course, he pointed out that Abraham was saved by faith. He wasn't saved by his works, he was saved by faith. Abraham believed God, okay? put his trust in God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. Okay, well, we'll go on and we'll look at, start looking at Romans chapter 9, specifically. Going through this. Now, it must be kept in mind, and I'll harp on it because it's been so frequently misunderstood. It must be kept in mind that it's Jew-Gentile, that God is dealing with nations. And when he talks about individuals, he only talks about them to point out principles in his dealing with nations, especially concerning justification through faith. Now, Romans chapter 9. Let's first look at verses 1 through 5. It's the first section. I am telling the truth in Christ, I am not lying. My conscience bearing me witness in the Holy Spirit, that I have great sorrow and unceasing grief in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were accursed, separated from Christ for the sake of my brethren, my kinsmen according to the flesh who are Israelites, to whom belongs the adoption as sons, and the glory, and the covenants, and the giving of the law, and the temple service, and the promises, who are the fathers, and from whom is the Christ according to the flesh, who is over all, God blessed forever. Amen. Okay, now, what's he talking about? These people, this Jewish nation, I'm a part of this as well, and I, I have continual grief and sorrow in my heart because they haven't really found out what it means to know God. Even though all these things have been given to them, that is, that is the adoption of sons, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the temple service. See, all these things happen through the nation of Israel. God communicating his truth to the world through a nation. And, of course, God told Abraham, 
in your seed, all of the nations will be blessed. And God's purpose was for uh, the nation of Israel to bless the entire world. And in, in this sense, they have. In that through them has come the communication of the things that Paul points out here. The communication of the law, the covenants, um, and even he, he points out that through them has come the, the Messiah. So that we could be saved as Gentiles as well. So, very high position that they have been given. And through them, God has communicated something to the world. But the fact that God chose them, and that word is very frequently misunderstood, the fact that God chose them as a nation to communicate truth to the world did not mean that they were saved. When God speaks of them as the chosen nation, he chose them to communicate something to people. And yet, if an Israelite did not live according to the law that was revealed, and if he sinned and did not make sacrifice and repent, he was lost. God said, if you don't keep this covenant with me, then you'll be separated from me. You'll be cut off from me. So just because a person was a Jew did not mean that they had a relationship with God automatically or that they were saved. It simply meant that they were in a group of people that God had chosen to bring his truth to the world. The choosing was not unto salvation. The choosing was to be a group of people through which God would communicate truth to the world. Okay? So when we say Israel was God's chosen people, yes, they were. And in the sense that, that God used them to communicate truth to the world, in some senses they still are. But when we talk about salvation, then you're not talking about Israel as God's chosen people anymore. You have to talk about individual relationship with God. Because that's what salvation has to do with. Okay? We need to be careful when we use our words, Israel is God's chosen people. It doesn't mean because they were chosen that they were therefore saved. That was dependent upon what the individual did with his own life. Okay, so then God gave a revelation through the Jewish nation. Let's go on. Um, six. But it is not as though the word of God has failed. What is he saying? The word of God did not fail. For they are not all Israel who are descended from Israel. Now, they are not all Israel, meaning God's people, who are descended from Israel, that is Jacob. Okay? Jacob's name was Israel. He's got two different things going here. They are not all Israel, God's people, who are, who are descended from Israel. In other words, just because you're a Jew does not mean that you're, you're part of the people of God. How about that? They are not all Israel, God's people, who descended from Israel. Not every single person that, that, be, that because they were born from Jacob and were descendants of Jacob were not automatically God's people. That depended on what you did with the covenant that God had given. If you rejected the covenant, you were not Israel. And yet you could be descended from Israel. You see? Jesus got the, the Jews very upset many times because he kept referring to, to Jews that went to hell. <laughs> he said, well, this rich man, who happened to be a son of Abraham, ended up in hell. What was he doing there? You see? They thought they were saved simply because they were Jews. Okay? And John the Baptist was always doing that too. Said, look, said, don't don't say, well, we're children of Abraham. He says, man, God can take these rocks and make children of Abraham out of them. And so you can't have any confidence in the fact that you're a child of Abraham. You better repent. 
you see, saying that it's a moral thing in your relationship with God, not whether or not you're a Jew. Whether or not you're a Jew doesn't make any difference. John the Baptist, as a Jew, said, doesn't make any difference. Jesus said the same thing. Doesn't make any difference as to your salvation as to whether or not you're a Jew. It depends on if you keep the covenant. And that meant, according to John the Baptist and Jesus, repentance and living in relationship with God. So, they are not all Israel who are descended from Israel. Neither are they all children because they are Abraham's descendants. You say, well, I'm a child of Abraham. Well, that depends. Paul the Apostle points out in the book of Galatians that we, Gentiles, are the children of Abraham through faith in Christ Jesus. You see? It's a different principle that makes you a child of Abraham than just being born as a descendant of Abraham. Neither are they all children because they are Abraham's descendants, but through Isaac your descendants will be named. Quote from the Old Testament. That is, now he's going to explain what he's talking about. It is not the children of the flesh, that is physical descendants, who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are regarded as descendants. In other words, you're not even a descendant necessarily because you were born um, of the line of Abraham. You were a descendant if you followed Abraham's steps through faith. If you did the same thing Abraham did and believed God, then you were a child of Abraham. And the whole idea of being a child of Abraham was doing the same things that Abraham did. You see? Jesus said to the Jews in, in John chapter 8, said, if you were the children of Abraham, you would have done the works of Abraham and believed in me. What? Can you imagine that? If you were descendants of Abraham, if you were the children of Abraham, can you imagine saying that to a Jew? Well, you're not a descendant of Abraham because you're not believing in me. I imagine that just flipped him out a little bit. Okay, so Paul is talking about here, what is a, who is a true Israelite? You see? And he's talking about the fact that just because a person was a Jew did not mean that they were an Israelite. They did not mean that they were part of God's people. It did not mean that they were a part of the descendants. They weren't necessarily children of the promise because they were, they were physical descendants of Abraham. And he goes on, For this is a word of promise. At this time, I will come and Sarah shall have a son. It doesn't have anything to do with works. It doesn't have anything to do with whether or not there is a physical descendancy. It has to do with a promise. Okay? God promised that she would have a son. It's not based on works. And he's going to go on to talk about that very explicitly. Not only this, but there was Rebecca also. When she had conceived twins by one man, our father Isaac, for though the twins were not yet born and had not done anything good or bad in order that God's purpose, according to his choice, might stand, not because of works, but because of him who calls, it was said to her, the older will serve the younger. Now, that's the first thing we're going to talk about is the older will serve the younger. But let's look at what he's, what he's leading up to here. He says, they're not all just because they're a descendant of Abraham doesn't make them a child of promise. It depends on something else, folks. It doesn't, doesn't matter whether or not they're physical descendants of Abraham. That doesn't automatically make them part of the people of God. It doesn't automatically make them part of the chosen seed. See? Some of the children of promise. It's something else that does that. And it's on the basis of promise, not on the basis of works. Not according to what they've done. And so, 
God made a choice. And what he did was he said, I'm going to move in history and I'm going to do it this way with these with with these people. That's groups, not individuals. But with these people, I'm going to do this. And it was before either of them was born. Okay? And we're going to look at that very carefully. We're going to see that that does not have to do with individuals, but has to do with groups. But let's go through verse 11 again. For though the twins were not yet born and had not done anything good or bad. See what he's getting at? He's getting at, it doesn't matter about your works, folks. It's not based on works. In order that God's purpose, according to his choice, might stand, not because of works, but because of him who calls, okay? that what his purpose, the way it's going to stand, is not according to what we have done, but it's going to stand according to the choices that he has made. It was said to her, that is to Rebecca, the older will serve the younger. Now there's a break there. Verse 13 is from another part of the Bible, and he's making a different quote from another part of the Bible. And this was not said to Rebecca. Verse 13 was not. Verse 12 was said to Rebecca. Verse 13 was not. We must keep that clear. Okay, now verse 12, if we'll look in, um, look in Genesis 25, verses 21 to 23. Genesis 25, verses 21 to 23, talks about Rebecca and her twins. And when God said this, now, this is in a group context. When it says the older will serve the younger, it has very frequently been taught that that is talking about Jacob and Esau simply because the next verse that he quoted talked about Jacob and Esau. Okay? But that's not true. Well, let's look at it. And Isaac prayed to the Lord on the behalf of his wife because she was barren, and the Lord answered him, and Rebekah his wife conceived. But the children struggled together within her, and she said, If it is so, then why am I this way? So she went to inquire of the Lord, and the Lord said to her, now listen to this, two nations are in your womb, and two peoples shall be separated from your body. The one people shall be stronger than the other, and the older shall serve the younger. It's not talking about individuals, it's talking about nations, peoples, groups of peoples, you see? It's not talking about the individuals of Jacob and Esau. It was never fulfilled. This word was never fulfilled on a personal level. And the reason that it was never fulfilled was because it isn't a personal reference. It's a reference to nations. Two nations are in your womb and two people shall be separated from your body. The older will serve the younger. Now, it never happened on a personal level. Esau never served Jacob. As a matter of fact, it was the other way around. Jacob ended up coming back to Esau after he came back from being with Laban, his uncle. And Jacob bowed down to Esau and called him Lord. You see, Esau never did serve Jacob. Didn't happen that way. And so if this were a personal reference, it never got fulfilled. Okay? But it's not personal. It's national. And in a national sense, it did get fulfilled because the, the nation of Edom, which was descended from Esau, eventually became the servants of the nation of Israel. And that did happen. You see? Huh? Yeah, after they came back from Egypt and they had conquered, conquered the land, then Edom was brought into subjection to Israel. You see? And the older nation was the nation of Edom because it was already a nation by the time the, the children of Israel came back and were establishing 
the land of Canaan as the, as the land of Israel. You see? It was fulfilled in a national context. It is not a, um, an individual statement concerning two pe- these two people. Now, let's get to that very confusing verse. As, just as it is written. Now, Paul the Apostle here is quoting from another part of the Old Testament. He is not quoting from Genesis. It was not said there. He's quoting from another place, and he's, he's making a little break here, and he says, Just as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Now, why in the world would he make a quote about two individuals when he's talking about um, the older will serve the younger? And that's in a national context. Why does he talk about two individuals? A lot of people have taken this verse, Jacob have I loved and Esau have I hated, to mean the, this idea that God, before Jacob and Esau were ever born, and they get that out of verse um, 11, you see, before Jacob and Esau were ever born, that he loved one and hated the other. Now, doesn't that sound a bit arbitrary to you? Doesn't that sound a bit unjust to you? It does to me too. Now, if you understand what it's coming from from the Old Testament, however, it does not like that. Because when he quotes, Jacob have I loved, but Esau have I hated, he's quoting from the book of Malachi. And in the book of Malachi, that statement is talking about nations and not individuals. Not only that, but it's talking about those nations after both nations had existed for quite some time. And the whole thing that God's basing it on is the the different reactions of the two nations to himself. He said, I, I, I take pleasure in Jacob, that is, in, in uh, Israel, in the way that they've responded to me. I have not taken pleasure or I have hated Esau or Edom because of the way they've responded to me. You see? It's on the basis of what they have done as nations and not on the basis of God, God knew these individuals before they were born. Do you understand that? You getting it? So let's look in the book of Malachi and see what he's quoting from here. Malachi chapter 1, verses 1 through 5. The oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel through Malachi. Notice this is to Israel. I have loved you, that's Israel, the nation, says the Lord, but you say, how hast thou loved us? Was not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the, the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob, but I have hated Esau, and I have made his mountains, notice that, a desolation and appointed his inheritance for the jackals of the wilderness. Though Edom says, we have been beaten down, but we will return and build the ruins. Thus says the Lord of hosts, they may build, but I will tear down. And men will call them the wicked territory and the people toward whom the Lord is indignant forever. The people, a nation, toward whom the Lord is indignant forever. And your eyes will see this and you will say, the Lord be magnified beyond the border of Israel. It's not talking about individuals. It's talking about Israel and Edom as nations. So when it says, now let's take verses 11, 12, and 13 together. God made a promise before it was ever, before it was ever, uh, the children had an opportunity to do anything good or bad. The promise was made, the older nation will serve the younger nation concerning nations remember that it was said the older will serve the younger that's on the basis of promise apart from works just as it is written jacob i loved but esau i hated now why does he quote that jacob i loved but esau i hated because it's concerning the nations of israel and edom and what they had done and the way that god responded 
to them. And that's the principle that he's getting out of this. It's not by works. You're not justified by what you have done. And he established in history, not salvation, but the relationship of the, of the uh, two nations, Israel and Edom, according to a choice before they ever existed. You understand that? It's not concerning personal salvation. It's concerning God's movement in history that he said the older will serve the younger. You understand that? Okay? So it doesn't concern individual salvation. And when he says, Jacob have I loved and Esau have I hated, that doesn't concern individual salvation either. It concerns God's response to the nations after they had already existed for quite some time. Basically pointing out that what God had, what God had ordained that one would serve the other came to pass, but that the reason that God hated one and loved the other was because of their response to him. You get that? It wasn't that God hated one and loved the other before they were ever born or anything like that. And it wasn't concerning individuals. It was God hated one nation and loved the other because of their responses to him. Okay. You get that? Okay. We could go into other things concerning hatred here. The idea of hatred sometimes does not mean necessarily, literally, that, that someone hated another person, but they loved less or put in a, in a lesser category of love than someone else. If you take the reference that says, um, uh, except a man hate his father and mother, he cannot be my disciple. If you look at that in the other Gospels, it's stated this way, except you love me more than your mother and father. And so what Jesus meant there by except a man hate his mother and father was that you have to love Jesus first before your mother and father or you cannot be a disciple. He did not mean literally that you were to hate your parents because the Bible also commands us not to hate, you see, and to lay aside all bitterness and all wrath and all malice. Now, how could the Bible command us to do that and still command us to hate our mother and father? Okay? But see, just comparing the different portions of Scripture helps you understand what Jesus was talking about. Got that? So when he says, Jacob have I loved, but Esau have I hated, it can be that kind of a statement as well. Not hate in the sense of an intense, you know, that, that kind of a thing towards them, but that he loved one and he had less love for the other because of the way that they responded to him or, they, or he found it difficult to love them. Okay, anyway, let's go on. Now, um, in verses 14 to 18, we have some of the most interesting verses, I think, in the whole Bible. And uh, if we don't take them and find out what Paul the Apostle is saying through them from the Old Testament, we're going to get really confused. Now, remember, we're talking about what? Nations. Okay, I'll tell you what we're talking about. We're talking about nations. And the fact that God has the right to save the Gentiles through faith. Because that's the way he's always saved people. Okay. The Jews got it all messed up and thought that God was doing it through works, and that was wrong. And in 14, Paul says this. What shall we say then concerning this choice that God made, that uh, through a promise he had, he had moved in history? What shall we say then? There is no injustice with God, is there? You see? Because somebody at that point could go, well, uh, I don't know. 
you see? What, what is God doing, you know, saying, oh, this is the way I'm going to move in history? And they could say, well, maybe God's being unjust, doing that before anybody was even there. See, the, the nations didn't even exist yet. He said, this is the way it's going to be. What shall we say then? There is no injustice with God, is there? May it never be. Now, notice the next word. What's the next word? For. The next word is for. Okay? Now, what does that word mean? Because. He's relating it to the phrase that he said before, right? May it never be because or for he says to Moses. Now, he's going to quote a verse. And he's going to show you how God is not unjust. And he's going to quote you a verse from the Old Testament to prove to you that God is not arbitrary and that God is not unjust. And then look at the strange verse that he quotes. I just want you to get his logic. You see what he's doing? He says, oh, there's no injustice with God, is there? May it never be. Because God said to Moses, and now I'm going to show you from what God said to Moses, that God is totally just. Follows principle completely, never does anything arbitrarily. And what does he quote? I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. How weird for him to quote that. But you know, the only reason that we think it's weird is because we've always been told that verse means that God is arbitrary. And we've never looked at what Paul is doing. He's saying that verse says that God is in no way arbitrary. There's no injustice with God, and we never take it back to its Old Testament setting to find out what it means. And so we let people tell us this means God can have mercy on one person, and he doesn't have to have mercy on another person if he doesn't want to. We'll look at a, In a few minutes, we'll look at a bunch of scriptures to talk about how mercy is conditional. It's not arbitrary. Okay? So then, let's take it back to its Old Testament context, shall we? In uh, Exodus chapter 33 and verse 19, where the verse is quoted from here, Exodus 33, verse 19. Now, in order to understand this verse, it's got a very long context. It's the end of a very long conversation between God and Moses. Okay? Now, in this conversation, I'll give you the background as to what's happened. It starts in chapter 32, goes through chapter 32 and chapter 33, and ends up with this statement. And when it ends up with this statement, it gives us a very clear picture that God is not arbitrary, but we have to understand the context. What happened was that the children of Israel made this golden calf, and God got very upset with them when they made this golden calf because they were worshiping idols. Now, the reason he got upset, of course, is because idol worship is bad for you. It's dishonest, sin, and it's, uh, it makes you, the Bible says, you become like the things that you worship. Well, now, God then starts talking with Moses, and Moses is on the mountain, and he's trying to talk with God about this situation with the golden calf. And God says, okay, Moses, I am going to wipe out the children of Israel, and I'm going to make you a great and mighty nation. I'm going to fulfill my promise to the fathers through you. And he starts praying, Moses does, and says, Oh God, you can't do that. Just think of what the Egyptians will say if you wipe out your people in the wilderness. God just brought them out here in the wilderness to, to wipe them out. And said, Your name, 
your own character will be slandered amongst the people that are around here if you do that kind of thing. And he starts interceding. Oh, God, don't do that. See? Now, he's not talking about punishing the people for their sins. He's talking about wiping them out as a nation and changing his course in history with the nation. He's not talking about the punishment of the people for their sins. You get that? It's something beyond the punishment of the people for their sins. It's his dealings in history with the nation of Israel. And he's thinking of changing his course of action and doing something with Moses instead of the children of Israel because he's very upset that they would go and worship a golden calf after all they've seen him do. And so, Moses is able to talk God out of not destroying the children of Israel as a nation. And it says, and he says, O Lord, change your mind. Chapter 32 and verse 13. Whoops, no. Verse 12. Turn from thy burning anger and change thy mind about doing harm to thy people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, thy servants to whom thou didst swear by thyself and didst say to them, I will multiply your descendants as the stars of the heavens and all this land of which I have spoken I will give to your descendants and they shall inherit it forever. So the Lord changed his mind about the harm which he said he would do to his people. Then Moses comes down off the mountain, breaks the tablets because he gets upset with the people. And you say, really strange that he would do that after he's already, you know, taken care of the situation as far as they're being wiped out is concerned. But see, he's still angry about their sin. And so then um, uh, he goes back up and starts talking with God again. And he says, well, I'm going to go back and I'm going to start talking with God about this. And he goes up and he says, oh, oh God, now that you've done that, now that you've not, you're not going to destroy them, in verse um, uh, 30, he says this, It came about on the next day that Moses said to the people, You yourselves have committed a great sin, and now I am going up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. Isn't that interesting? Not now, he's not dealing with the idea of um, Israel's being wiped out as a nation. Now he's dealing with their sin that they committed. Different things, eh? And Moses returned to the Lord and said, Alas, this people has committed a great sin, and they have made a god of gold for themselves. But now, if thou wilt forgive their sin, he doesn't finish that statement, and if not, please blot me out from thy book which thou hast written. And we get so absorbed in the fact that Moses is so gracious and so compassionate in saying, well, blot me out, God, instead of them, that we forget the response of God to him, which was, I'm sorry, Moses, I can't do that. So then what God is saying is, I'm sorry, Moses, I can't be arbitrary with the way that I dispense my mercy and my justice. I can't do that. If a person sins against me, I blot him out of my book. And you can pray all you want, but I can't blot you out for that other person's sin. I can't do that. Because God had revealed in the law, the son shall not be put to death for the father's sins, and the father shall not be put to death for the son's sins. Every man shall bear his own punishment. God couldn't break his law. God couldn't go against what was strict justice. What God knew to be right and wrong, he couldn't do that. And so he told him, you go now, you lead this people. You see, where I told you, Behold, my angel shall go before you. Nevertheless, 
Listen to this. In the day when I visit or when I punish, I will punish them for their sins. In other words, Moses talked God out of not destroying the nation of Israel as a nation, but he could not talk God out of not punishing them for their sins. You get the difference? Okay. Very interesting thing here. The, the idea of changing his course in history with the nation, Moses could talk God out of that. You see? But he could not talk God out of not punishing the people for their sins because that was according to the strictest justice and mercy. Because of his love, he judges us for our sins. And Moses could not talk God out of loving the nation of Israel. He couldn't do it. Which is basically what he was trying to do, talk him out of loving the people. And God says, I'm sorry, I can't do that. I love them so much that I have to punish them if they sin. Because it's good for them. Okay. And then in 33, it's the, the Lord said to Moses, this is the first one, Depart, go from here, you and the people whom I have brought up from the land of Egypt, and to the land which I have swore you, I will send the angel before you, etc., etc. Go up to, the, to this place, and so forth. The Lord said to Moses, Say to the people, You are obstinate. Should I go up in your midst for one moment, I would destroy you. Now therefore put off your ornaments from you, that I may know what I will do with you. Isn't that interesting? God didn't know what he was going to do with the people until they took off their ornaments. God didn't even know what he was going to do, much less what they were going to do. How's that one for four dollars? Okay, it says, uh, verse 5, it says, Now therefore put off your ornaments from you, that I may know what I will do with you. And until they repented and took off their ornaments, God didn't know what he was going to do. If they didn't take off their ornaments, he would have responded in a different fashion. But they took off their ornaments. You see? They repented. You take off your ornaments from you, these things that you use to worship idols and so forth. And so, they stripped themselves of those. But that's an interesting verse concerning foreknowledge, isn't it? God didn't know not only what, he, what they were going to do, but he didn't know what he was going to do either. Until you take off your ornaments, I don't know what I'll do with you. How about that? Good. It eliminates foreknowledge. Anyway, go on. And so, Moses goes up to talk to the Lord again. And he says, um, well, God, and he's still trying to talk God into doing something with the people that God doesn't want to do. And Moses says to the Lord, verse 12, See, thou, thou dost say to me, Bring up this people, but thou thyself hast not let me know whom thou wilt send with me. Moreover, thou hast said, I have known you by name, and you have also found favor in my sight. Now therefore I pray thee, if I have found favor in thy sight, let me know thy ways, that I may know thee, so that I may find favor in thy sight. Consider too that this nation is thy people. <laughs> and here he is. He's got this whole thing. He says, now look, it's, I found favor with you, and um, I found favor with you, and you've put your grace on me, and you've said you know me by name. Now let me find favor with you. And consider that this, this nation's a people too. Okay? He's trying to sneak it in at the end. He's trying to get God to do things that God doesn't want to do. Saying okay? this break his justice. And he says, now look, God, you know, just remember this nation's your people too. And so um, I think it's in the book God's Strategy in Human History. If they point out that all of the responses to God in this conversation, and all of the responses of God to Moses are all in the singular. 
God keeps, uh, Moses keeps going, we, 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 and, and God keeps going, you, 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 singular. And doesn't talk to him in, the, in relationship to the nation, only talks to him in the singular. You, Moses, you, you, you. And only speaks to him in the singular form. And he said, that is God said, my presence shall go with you and I will give you rest. Then he said to him, that is to God, if thy presence does not go with us, do not lead us up from here. For how then can it be known that I have found favor in thy sight, I and thy people? Is it not by thy going with us, so that we, I and thy people, here he is trying to sneak the, sneak the other people in, say, I and thy people may be distinguished from all the other people who are on the face of the earth. And the Lord said to Moses, I will also do this thing of which you have spoken, for you have found favor in my sight, and I have known you by name. Okay. Then Moses said, I pray thee, show me thy glory. And I can see God heaving a great sigh of relief that finally Moses said something that included only himself. Well, God, show me your glory. <laughs> and so what does God do? He says this, and he said, I myself will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim the name of the Lord before you. But he didn't stop there. He also said this, and I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show compassion on whom I will show compassion. You see, God put that in there for Moses. God snuck something in at the end. And he said, look, I'll make all my goodness pass before you, but I'll be gracious to whom I'll be gracious, and I'll show compassion on whom I show compassion. In other words, because you have found favor in my sight, I can do that for you, but because others have not met the conditions, I can't do it for them. And so I'll have mercy on whom I have mercy. The person who has met the requirements before me of the children of Israel, I'll have mercy on them. And the person who has met the requirements for compassion, I'll have compassion on them. But I will not have compassion on the person who is guilty before me. Or have mercy on them. Then he goes on, says, but he said, You cannot see my face, nor for no man can see me and live. Then the Lord said, Behold, there is a place by me, and you shall stand there on the rock. And it will come about that when my glory is passing by, that I will put you in the cleft of the rock and cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take take my hand away, and you shall see my back, or my back parts, or my afterglow, but my face shall not be seen. And there's a, there's a cute little anecdote here that I'm going to throw in, so don't, don't lose your train of thought. But can you see this? Now the Lord said to Moses, this is chapter 34 and verse 1. Now the Lord said to Moses, cut out for yourself two stone tablets like the former ones, and I will write on the tablets the words that were on the former tablets which you shattered. So be ready by morning and come up in the morning to Mount Sinai and present yourself there to me on the top of the mountain. And so what is God saying? Look, Moses, you, got, you went down there. You got all upset and broke those tablets. So now you uh, cut yourself out two new ones and you come up. You know, God cut the other ones out. And he says, now you, you come up and you have two tablets with you and be ready by tomorrow morning on top of the mountain. And I can just, I can hear it. It's very quiet in all the camp of Israel. And you can hear this. And this wife nudges her husband and says, what's that noise? Well, that's Moses. He's chopping out some 
He's chopping out some uh, tablets to replace the ones that he broke because he got angry. And God told him to make some tablets and bring them up with him on the mountain tomorrow morning. Moses, all night long, is sitting out there going, Oh, that's a funny little anecdote. You know, I think of the, the humor of God in that. Okay, Moses, you broke them. Now you bring them up tomorrow morning. Here he is all night long. Oh, why did I have to get angry? <laughs> okay. Learn something about getting angry. What kinds of results it causes. <laughs> okay. So be ready, he said in the morning, and come up onto the mountain. No man is to come up with you. So he cut out two stones like the former ones, and he rose up early in the morning. He went up to Sinai as the Lord commanded him, and he took the two stone tablets in his hand, singular. He took the two stone tablets in his hand. They weren't great, huge things. They were something he could carry in one hand. Okay? And the Lord descended. Now, get this. This is the fulfillment of what he said he was going to do. And God adds a little thing on here for Moses as well, trying to teach Moses about his justice. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood there with him as he called upon the name of the Lord. Now that's interesting. Moses called on the name of the Lord, and then the Lord came and stood with him. Then the Lord passed by in front of him and proclaimed. And this is what the Lord proclaimed. The Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness, who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity and iniquity, transgression and sin. And then he adds this on for Moses. Yet he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and on the grandchildren to the third and fourth generations. Okay, now you've already done some study on that. But this is the third and fourth generations of those that hate me. Okay? Could uh, somebody go out and tell them that we're recording? Okay. The third and fourth generations of those that hate me. And so he sticks this in here for Moses. Now look, Moses, I am gracious and kind and compassionate and so forth, but I don't clear the guilty. If the person's guilty, they have to suffer the results of what they've done. Understand? And so Moses, I hope, got the point there. But God slaps this on to the end so that Moses can learn about God's justice. Now let's go back to verse 19 of chapter 33. I myself will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim the name of the Lord before you and I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and I and will show compassion on whom I will show compassion. In its context of the two, those two chapters in the Old Testament, this is a very strong, concise verse saying that God is not arbitrary in the way that he shows mercy towards people, but that he follows strict laws of justice and that Moses could not talk him out of those laws that he followed. He said, I'll show mercy on the one that repents before me and the one who has sinned against me, I'll blot him out of my book. Okay? It's not a statement that God is arbitrary and it's been given to us in that form for so long that we don't really realize with our minds when we read it we don't realize what it's actually saying. And we get, get it really twisted around because of that. So then we've looked at the Old Testament context of, of um, verse 15. I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. Now let's go on to verse 16, which is a result of this. Paul the Apostle says, So then, 
so then, he's making a conclusion. He's very good in his arguments, very logical. So then, it does not depend on the man who wills or the man who runs, but on God who has mercy. Now, this has very frequently been presented to us in the wrong fashion, out of its context, out of the idea, apart from the idea, of the Jew-Gentile thing that Paul is talking about. It does not depend on the man who wills, that is, concerning works. It does not depend on the man who runs, another way of saying works, but it depends on God who shows mercy. You see? Salvation is because God shows mercy towards us. But now what does he mean by it does not depend on the man who wills or the man who runs? The typical um, Reformed theology would tell us this, that the man who wills is the person who is repenting, and the man who runs is the person who is, is um, choosing in faith to follow God. And so it doesn't matter. It doesn't depend upon repentance and faith. But it depends on God who shows mercy. That's the common way that it's taken. That it doesn't depend on, on what you choose, whether you choose to repent or believe or whatever. It doesn't depend on that. It depends on God arbitrarily showing mercy towards you and not to someone else. That's the typical Calvinistic way of looking at that if you're consistent in your Calvinism. But what is he saying? So then it does not depend on the man who wills or the man who runs, but on God who has mercy. Now, he's just made one of the, taken one of the grandest statements from the Old Testament about the fact that God is not arbitrary in the way that he shows mercy. And is he now turning around and saying God is arbitrary in his mercy? No. That would be totally out of line with his argument and totally out of line with his whole statement that he's making here. So what does it mean? It does not depend on the man who wills or the man who runs, but on God who has mercy. Very simple. It's not by works, it's by faith. And through faith, mercy will be shown to you. But it's not by works. He's talking to a Jewish audience, basically, the objector who is behind this, the guy that's asking the questions in this, and he's anticipating certain questions from the Jews. He's saying, now look, um, I, I'm, I'm thinking here that this guy is probably going, is still thinking in his head that it's according to works and not according to God's showing mercy okay, through faith. So then what he's getting at is that it is not through works, it is willing and running, representing works, but it's through mercy, through God's showing mercy. Now when he says wills and runs, it, we need to look at some other places in the Bible that talk about willing and running. Now, every place in the Bible that uses the word like um, believe, um, uses words like repent, continue, and it makes these conditions of salvation. Repent, believe, continue, and those are things that we choose to do. Now, if the Bible sets them up as conditions of salvation, then it does depend upon whether or not we repent and believe and choose. So obviously, Paul is not using the words will and run to talk about repentance and faith because it does depend on whether or not we repent and believe. Okay? Now, um, we're going to look at the word, the word run through the, Bible, through the New Testament and the way it's used. Some um, 
some people in the Calvinist or Reformed school would say that it does not depend on whether or not we run. Running is not a part, it doesn't matter whether you continue in faith, striving for faith and things like that, as to whether or not you're saved. The choice of God to save you is just out of his mercy and it has nothing to do with your running. Well, with the references that we have in the New Testament are in Romans 9.16, where the word trecho is used, which means to run. Okay. Romans 9.16, 1 Corinthians 9.24, 1 Corinthians 9.26, Galatians 2.2, 2. Galatians 5.7, Philippians 2.16, and Hebrews 12 and verse 1. Now let's look at those. We've just read the one in Romans 9.16. It does not depend on the man who wills or the man who runs, but on God who has mercy. 1 Corinthians 9.24. Do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but only one receives the prize? Run in such a way that you may win. You see? Running is a condition if you're going to win. In verse 26, it says, Therefore I run in such a way as not without aim. I box in such a way as not beating the air. Now why does he do that? I buffet my body and make it my slave, lest possibly, after I have preached to others, I myself should be disqualified. Now, in verse 27, the word that is translated disqualified or translated cast away in um, the King James Version is not properly translated here. It's not properly translated in the New American Standard either. The word disqualified, the, the word that is translated as disqualified or cast away, is the same word that is translated in the other places in the New Testament where it's found as rejected or reprobate. It means a person who is lost. Romans 1.28, the same word is used, and it means lost. 2 Corinthians 13.5 uses the same word. Now, this is not the word run now. This is the word castaway um, or reprobate. 2 Corinthians 13.5 says this, Test yourselves to see if you are in the faith. Examine yourselves. Or do you not recognize this about yourselves, that Christ Jesus is in you unless you indeed fail the test, and the word fail the test is are reprobate or rejected. Second uh, Timothy 3.8 says, Just as Janus and Jambres opposed Moses, so these men also opposed the truth. Men of depraved mind, isn't that interesting? Re re rejected as regards the faith. The word rejected here is the word that's the same words translated in 1 Corinthians 9.27. Rejected as regards the faith. They have been rejected. Okay? In Titus chapter 1 and verse 16 says concerning um, concerning false prophets in its context, they profess to know God, but by their deeds they deny him, being detestable and disobedient and worthless for any good deed. I think the word detestable is the one that's translated.
How does it read in the King James? It might be the word uh, worthless. You know the King James? It's Titus 1.16. I think it uses the word reprobate. Uses the word reprobate. Reprobate concerning good works. Okay, so the last word there, it's the word that's worthless here, is translated reprobate. Now I want to tell you something about the King James translation at this point. They translated that word that we've just looked at in Romans 1, 28, 2 Corinthians 13, 5, and so forth. They translated that word reprobate in every place except one. And they deliberately translated the word castaway concerning Paul the Apostle because they couldn't in any way conceive of Paul the Apostle knowing that he was among the elect as being cast away because they were Calvinistic. You see, how could Paul the Apostle be lost when he was among the elect? And they wouldn't apply that word to him, so they translated it cast away. And it's very commonly taught in um, Calvinist circles, this is what I was taught anyway, that this means put on the shelf, not good for any good works or anything, but not lost. And yet the word that is used is translated reprobate, rejected concerning the faith, um, outside of the realm of faith and so forth, in the, the rest of the way it's used in the New Testament. As well, the context of uh, verse 27 goes on to chapter 10. This is 1 Corinthians 9, 27. Goes on to chapter 10 with the little word for. And it goes on to the next 13 verses. For I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea. And he says how they all came through the cloud, they all came through the sea, they were all baptized into Moses, they all ate and drank of that spiritual rock which followed them, which was Christ, and some of them were laid low in the wilderness because of their unbelief and because of their sin. Okay? And he concludes with, therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. And the whole context there is in the context of falling away from your salvation. And so the word that is used, cast away, in, uh, or the word that is used, run, in verses 24 and 26, is a condition for salvation. That's why I went through 9.27 and pointed out how the word is used in the rest of the New Testament. Because it's concerning losing your salvation. And if you don't run, if you don't apply yourself... That's what Paul's talking about. Then you can lose your salvation. So it does depend upon your running. According to the New Testament, it depends upon whether or not you run as to whether or not you will be saved. It's a condition. Now, back to Romans 9.16, which says, So then it does not depend on the man who wills or the man who runs, but on God who has mercy. And you go... But it does depend on the man, on whether or not the man will. Yes, it does. Because you have to believe and repent. You see? And continue. And it does depend on the man who runs. Yes, it does. You see? Well, then, what is this, what is he saying here? He's just talking about the same old thing. It's not according to works that you're saved. God's principle that he's getting at is justification through faith. God will have mercy on you through faith if you meet the conditions. It's not a matter of whether or not you work, Jewish objector. And that's what he's talking about when he says, willing and running. Willing and running. Now, concerning the last word here, but on God who has mercy, 
If the thing here were arbitrary concerning God's mercy, that God could be merciful to one and not merciful to the other one if he wants to, well, then we have to look at what the Bible says about whether or not mercy is unconditional. And you'll find a great number of scriptures, just like that, you will find a great number of scriptures that say that mercy is conditional. And you will not find any place in the scripture that says that it is unconditional that God has mercy on a person if he wants to, so to speak, and doesn't have mercy on the other one. But it's according to what the person does as to whether or not God bestows mercy upon them. I'll read out the, the references to the best scriptures through the Bible, although there are many others that imply the same thing. I'll read out the best scriptures that can be found on the fact that mercy is conditional. Exodus 20 and verse 6. Deuteronomy chapter 4, verses 25 through 31. Deuteronomy 5, verse 10. Deuteronomy 13, verses 17 and 18. 2 Samuel chapter 22, verse 26. Chapter 22, verse 26. 1 Kings and verse 6. 1 Kings 8.23 Nehemiah chapter 1 and verse 5. Psalm 25.10 Psalm 32.10 Psalm 86, 3 through 5. Psalm 103, verses 11, 17, and 18. Proverbs 14, 22. Proverbs 28, 13. Isaiah 27, verses 7 through 11. Isaiah 55, verses 3 and 7. Jeremiah 3, verses 11 through 14. That was Jeremiah 3, verses 11 through 14. Daniel chapter 9. Verse 4. Hosea. Chapter 2. And verse 4. Hosea. Chapter 2. And verse 4. Matthew. Chapter 5. And verse 7. Luke. Chapter 1. And verse 50. Luke. Chapter 18. Verses 9 through 14. Luke 18, verses 9 through 14. 1 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 13. Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 16. Okay? Those are the best ones that can be found. There are others. 
that indicate the same thing, either by example or they say indirectly that mercy is conditional. Let's just take a look at one of those. I'll just pick one here. Nehemiah 1.5. Nehemiah. Nehemiah chapter 1, verse 5 says, And I said, I beseech thee, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God, who preserves covenant and loving kindness, which is the same word as mercy, and loving kindness for those who love him and keep his commandments. You see? Mercy is towards those who love him and keep his commandments. And you can, every one of those verses that I gave says the same kind of thing. As high as the heaven is above the earth, so great is his mercy towards those who fear him. You see? So all, so all those kinds of things. Got a condition in there. Okay. Um, now, we're going to go on to verse 17. On to verse 17. This is one of the, the uh, tuppies in this particular section as well. And we'll take part of the, part of the um, problem today, but then we're going to go through the scriptures in the Old Testament concerning the hardening of Pharaoh's heart, of which there are about uh, 30. And we're going to briefly look at those in the Old Testament, but we won't do those today. We're going to do those later. But we're going to talk about the general thing of God's hardening Pharaoh's heart. Let's read verse 17. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I raised you up to demonstrate my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed throughout the whole earth. We'll deal with verse 18 later because he's just summarizing in verse 18 what he said before. Okay? In verse 17... Um, what we're going to do now is go to the Old Testament. No, let's not do that. <laughs> we'll do that yet. We are going to read it out of the Old Testament, and you will see that the rendering from the Hebrew in the Old Testament is different than this. Paul the Apostle evidently was quoting the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament, which they had at that time. And it appears to be a little different than it's, it's given in the Hebrew and so we have to see what the Hebrew is saying as well and take it in its context, of course. Now, in reference to God's suspending a person's free will, we want to talk a little bit about that. There are cases in the Old Testament where God suspended people's free will. And we have to deal with that in our understanding of God's relation, the relationship of God's dealing with man with respect to his will. Now, God sometimes did do this in the Old Testament, and we'll take a look at a couple of the examples, but when he did it, there were certain things that were always true about these specific incidents when they took place. And I'm going to point out five of them, and then we'll look at some, um, some examples of that. Number one, the person, when God suspended their free will, the person was always an evil person. The person was always an evil person. Of course, you can see why he would do that. have to do it with an evil person, but not with a righteous person. He doesn't have any problem with the will of a righteous person. He simply says, would you please do this? And the person does it. 
you say. So he doesn't have to coerce their will to get them to do something. He's already got the submission of their will. So of necessity, he would only do this with a person who was evil and was not obeying him. Okay? So it was always with an evil person. You won't find any examples of God's suspending the will of a righteous person in the Old Testament. And you won't find it. Then, number two, it was always temporary. Never do you find an example of a person in the Old Testament that didn't have any free will of, um, at all during their entire lifetime. You don't find that. You find that they were free, and there, was, uh, there, was, there were times when there was an exception made for a short period of time when the person had their will suspended. So it was temporary. It wasn't permanent. God never permanently suspended someone's free will. Always just for a short time. Number three, when God suspended their free will, it never concerned their salvation. It never had to do with the person's salvation. Okay. You'll find that what it had to do with was whether, oh, let's see, how can I say it? It had to do with God's dealing in history, it had to do with world history, with the events of nations, and did not um, have to do with the person's individual salvation. Now, in one case, that is the case of Nebuchadnezzar, God was humbling Nebuchadnezzar, but it had, re it had something to do with the place of the nation of Babylon in history. So, we'll take a look at the case with Nebuchadnezzar, but it did still did not have to do with Nebuchadnezzar's salvation. It didn't have to do with that. It had to do with Nebuchadnezzar being humbled as a person and learning that the Lord God can humble people. He learned something about God, but it didn't have to do with his salvation. Okay? If he learned anything, if it had anything to do with his salvation at all, which I don't believe it did, the only thing that it did was brought him close to salvation brought him closer because of his influence. And I can't complain if God moves in someone's life to bring them closer. The choice, of course, would still be his as to whether or not he was saved. Then, number four, all consequences were suspended. In other words, if God made a wicked person do something that brought good results to someone else, they were not rewarded for it. And if God did something to a wicked person that appeared to bring bad results, then the person was not punished for it if something bad resulted from it in their, in their life. You see? We'll give some example of that in a minute. But the consequences were suspended. And number five, it always resulted in good to someone. When God chose to suspend some of a wicked person's free will, it ended up in God doing good to someone. Now, I can't complain about that. Can you? The fact that God takes the wickedness of a person and suspends it for a short time in order to be able to do good to someone. That, to me, is only, shows, only shows me how much God loves us and how God is going to triumph. In the end, it doesn't, doesn't bother me at all that God would do good to someone by interrupting someone's wickedness. <laughs> you see? If God interrupted someone's righteousness in order to do that, it would bother me. But anyway, let's look at uh, Balaam.
and Nebuchadnezzar, two cases where God suspended people's free will. And of course, the major thing we're going to be looking at is Pharaoh, but we'll look at that on Monday. Okay? So, when you look at Balaam, what happened with Balaam? This is in Numbers chapters 23, 24, 25. Balaam came to curse the children of Israel. And the scripture says, he opened his mouth to curse, and God put a word in his mouth and turned the curse into a blessing. Now, wouldn't that be freaky? You go to open your mouth and curse, and out comes a blessing. You see? And, you're, and it isn't under your control, and you go, hmm. And so you try again, and out comes another blessing. And you go, hmm. You see? And here was Balaam trying to curse the children of Israel, and all that would come out of his mouth was a blessing, because God was putting words in his mouth. Okay, now, <clears throat> what about that then? Well, number one, he was an evil person. He was trying to curse. It was temporary. It didn't happen over his whole life that God suspended his will. It happened when he tried to curse. Because there were other things you can read about there where he really did do some damage. He led people into idolatry and, and fornication and other things as well. Okay, but at this point where he tried to curse, God put a word in his mouth, so it was temporary. It didn't concern his salvation. You see, it had to do with the blessing of the nation of Israel in world history. It didn't have to do with Balaam's salvation. Another thing was, well, the fifth thing, we'll take the fifth thing first. It brought good to others in that the nation of Israel was blessed because of that rather than cursed. And then going back to number four, the consequences were suspended. That is, when Balaam... When Joshua brought the children of Israel into the land of Canaan, God commanded them, saying, You shall destroy Balaam, the son of Beor, or Besor, with the sword, because he is a diviner and a sorcerer. You know what that means? God had Balaam killed because he was involved in the occult. He did not have Balaam killed, or he did not have Balaam blessed and spared because he blessed the children of Israel. God just completely disregarded that he had brought tremendous blessing upon the children of Israel. Why? Because that wasn't Balaam's intention. That was something God did in making Balaam bless the children of Israel when he wanted to curse. And so God said, you go in there and you kill him with a sword because he's a, he's a, a diviner and a sorcerer involved in the occult. And he was not blessed for the way that he blessed the children of Israel because he wasn't responsible for blessing the children of Israel. He was trying to curse and God was the one that was responsible for the blessing. Now with Nebuchadnezzar, it's the other way around. He's a wicked person and temporarily God laid aside his sanity, just took his mind away from him and made him an animal for a while, put him under another law than the law of free will. Balaam was put under the law of cause and effect, which the inanimate creation follows. Nebuchadnezzar was put under the law of instinct. He was made an animal for a while. He was put under another law rather than the law of free will that God uses to govern the universe, the law of instinct. Okay? He uses with animals. So, temporarily, he did that. It was not concerning his salvation. It was concerning the place of, of uh, Babylon in world history. And it was to show Nebuchadnezzar that God could humble people and, and that Nebuchadnezzar should not be proud 
but it did not in any way secure his salvation at all. All it did was show him that he was not to be proud. Then, um, it resulted in good, that is, in this case, it was directly good to Nebuchadnezzar, as well as good to other people, because Nebuchadnezzar said, I extol the God of heaven, let all the peoples worship him, even praise God because of it. But it was especially good to him, because it taught him that he should not be proud. And that's a good lesson to learn. See? And he came out the better for it in the end, humble and knowing that he should not be proud. And then lastly, the consequences were suspended. Lastly, the consequences were suspended. That is, it says directly in Daniel chapter 4, which is where the story is. Let me read this to you. Daniel chapter 4. He became an animal for a while. And it says what he lost. the interpretation, O king, this is what Daniel said, and this is the decree of the Most High which has come upon my Lord the king, you w- that you be driven away from mankind, and your dwelling place be with the beasts of the field, and you be given grass to eat like cattle, and be drenched with the dew of heaven, and seven periods of time will pass over you until you recognize that the Most High is ruler over the realm of mankind, and bestows it on whomever he wishes. Um... And then he was in the palace of Babylon, and King Nebuchadnezzar said, oh, he says, look at all this. He says, is this not Babylon the Great, which I myself have built as a royal residence by the might of my power and for the glory of my majesty? While the word was in the king's mouth, a voice came from heaven saying, King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is declared sovereignty has been removed from you, and you will be driven away, and of course the rest of the thing is, stated there. Immediately the word concerning Nebuchadnezzar was fulfilled. He was driven away from mankind, began eating grass like cattle, and his body was drenched with dew of of heaven until his hair had grown like eagle's feathers and his nails like bird's claws. And afterwards, after that that period of time, he he, uh, raised his eyes toward heaven. God gave him his reason back. He praised the Lord. And then it says, at that time, verse 36, at that time my reason returned to me and my majesty and splendor were restored to me for the glory of my kingdom and my counselors and my nobles began seeking me out so I was reestablished in my sovereignty and surpassing greatness was added to me. You see, all the things that he had lost because he'd become an animal. He'd lost his counselors, he'd lost his governors, he'd lost his kingdom, he'd lost his majesty, he'd lost his glory. It was all gone because he became an animal. And all of that was restored to him afterwards. And he was the better for it because then he said, the last verse here, Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise, exalt, and honor the king of heaven for all his works are true and his ways just. He didn't find anything unjust in God's making him an animal for a while. And he is able to humble those who walk in pride.